when you have local businesses near downtown, because more people can walk or bike to the downtown because of the trail network, well, those are all good things. So this is Craig Dalapena, and you're the executive director of the new Norwada Network. Yep, Norwada Network. Can you tell me what that is? That's a nonprofit, 501c3, set up today to do uh, historic call-outs on this long 100-mile trail. It will be the best historically narrated trail in the United States. We will give donations to communities where sections of the trail are open, and there'll be like a big kiosk at a trailhead, maybe 10 feet long, big, big thing with a roof on it. And then there will be smaller little displays along the trail. And then we're going to have a bunch of QR codes that will lead back to our main website that will be a video, maybe an audio narration by some old rail fan talking about railroad history there or the industry. What was that old mill one day or, or, or what was there one day? Something was demolished and this is what it used to look like and on and on, on and on. The whole thing, a hundred mile historically narrative trail. Nothing else like there'll be and, a dozen other trails that connect to this too. So uh, this is, and you're, you're in LA with this, uh, with this talk. So I'm, people in Los Angeles probably have a bunch of question marks over their heads about who the hell is this guy talking? Well, where I'm sitting right now, within 150 miles of me, all around me, is the densest network of dead steam railroad corridors in North America. And what is here, they didn't go to you know, old coal mine branch lines where no one lives and nothing to see but scenery. No, here, these would, went to these huge old mill complexes. The mills are now repurposed for modern uses, apartments, condos, startup companies, but the dead railroad corridors coming to them are right where people live, work, and play. There is nothing else like this in North America. It will be the densest network built out, give me another 20 years. This trail will be done in five years. So, The Norwatak Trail will be done in five years? Well, it's called Mass Central Rail Trail. We, we moved away from the unpronounceable, unspellable name. That was the, the State Parks Agency branding of the Western segment of this long 100-mile trail. And, uh, and so we, we, we called it out on our 501c3 nonprofit so it doesn't get forgotten. Because believe me, it's got 100 different ways to mispronounce the name or misspell it. So we only use it for this now. The main trail, the, the, the usable name is Mass Central Rail Trail. What is the millennial network or the, the thing that Bill Clinton started? Oh, Okay. That, during the Clinton administration back in 98, 99, they came up with a plan to, to recognize uh, each state's best trail. And they came up with a program and American Express at that time gave $10,000 for each state to create a, 
a millennial trail. They, each state had a contest. Uh, what was the best trail, best rail trail that, uh, uh, that exemplified that state's highlights and worthy things about each state? And, and actually, believe it or not, in Connecticut, the trail that won was actually a road trail that connected art museums. So it was called the Art Trail. And that was the winning thing in Connecticut. In Massachusetts, there were two entries. One was in Eastern Mass. It was called the Bay Circuit Trail. And uh, uh, that one did not win. But the one out here in Western Mass, this is the one that got the award, that won the contest, won the $10,000 gift. And, um, and then they started doing trail betterments with the $10,000. You know, a lot of hands-on volunteer-based initiatives to, uh, to do good things along the near the neurotic section of the Mass Central Rail Trail. Don't forget, this is New England. This is different than most other places. People come here and they are stunned because this looks historic. It looks old. It looks like things did when they used to be. And so um, we'd have to call out the history. It's just in our blood. We have to call out the history of these dead railroads to let people know what it was all about. So it's a perfect match. So it's bike lanes. Is it what? It, so it's bike lanes now. Um, well, bike lanes are on roads. And, you know, I, I, would, I would look at the rails to trails movement in this way. It is important uh, in this context that if you're going to be making bigger, better, better bicycling in your community, the, the best way to do that is to have an off-road path. To put bike lanes on roads is good, but in a lot of cases, the, the People are not brave to do that. The will take, it will take place over time, the like generational shift where that use of bicycling becomes commonplace. But think of it as the ski slopes. You don't put the newbie skiers on the, you know, the diamonds, black diamond slopes, the professional steep slopes. They go on the bunny slopes. And so you might think of rail trails as the first step into integrating bicycling in your community. And in, and in fact, um, this place where my house sits eight feet from the rail trail here, we're not here by accident. But the interesting thing is that this trail has been in the ground so long here that motorists expect to see bikes every single day of the year here, not just some Sunday tourists out for a bike ride. No, this is integrated into life here day one. The change took place in 1982 here. And today, most crashes involving bicyclists are, the motorists are from places where they don't see bikes commonly or often. And, you know, a, a, good, a good look at this would be in the Netherlands, where people rarely wear helmets. How can that be? What, how did that happen? Well, back in the 70s, when they built all their off-road bike networks, um, they didn't just build out the infrastructure, the buzzword of today. No, they actually changed the laws and said, you hit a bicyclist with your car, you're going to jail. No ifs, and buts, or maybes, 
you're going to jail. And so that magically means that bicyclists are seen by motorists often, so much so that the bicyclists vote with their heads without a helmet. It's very rare to see helmets there because it's not seen as a dangerous thing. It is seen as a dangerous thing to bike on the roads in lots of places. Places with the rail trail in the ground for two generations become safer than places that don't have a rail trail. So, so uh, part of what I read about you uh, was that you parachuted in to places where people were having, were trying to convince the powers that be to to put in a rail trail. Yeah, there was lots of opposition. That's where I, that's where I got started. Um, there were the, the, I was just telling this to someone today that there are three stages of truth in whatever realm you're talking. The first stage is they think it's a crackpot idea and they laugh you away. It's, That'll never happen. You're crazy. It's, the second stage is they realize you're serious and they'll become vociferous opponents, dead-enders, extremists fighting you to their last breath. And the third stage of truth is people were opposed to that. I can't believe it. You're not telling me the truth. That can't be true. I marketed rail freight for, for about 12 years and operated big transloading facilities for the railroads. I have a background in railroad history. And I was invited to write a series of books about old rail lines and their conversion to bike and hike trails. And all about the history of these lines is how I got started. And after the first book came out, it was a big hit. I'm under contract to do second and third book. And the railroad company I worked for was gonna be selling, this was in 1996. They were gonna be selling the dead railroad corridor little community not far from me. And, and I heard there was some pushback and people had angst and were afraid and angry. And so I went to the public meeting and I was astounded to see that the opponents called out all the elders and said, you know, Martha, you have to come out and visit, come out to town meeting tonight because the outsiders are coming in. If we don't vote down this crazy trail idea, we'll, we'll all be the worst for wear. And I was just so stunned. I couldn't believe it. They did vote it down. And they told when I left, I was just sitting in the background there. Nobody knew who, who I was. And I said to one of the opponent, leader opponents, I said, you know, I'll be back one day and you will see this trail get built. So then um, I started speaking on the subject. I was noticed by David Burwell, who is the founder of Rails to Trails Conservancy. And after a five hour job interview at his mother's house, overlooking the ocean woods hole on Cape Cod, Massachusetts, they hired me with three main goals. I'm to parachute into all the rail trail wars. I'm to teach locals how to speak compellingly about this subject. We're not gonna have a top down Craig-driven conversation. We're not going to have a top-down driven conversation because that won't succeed. Instead, I will train locals how to speak compellingly on this subject. I will raise the level of membership 
And uh, I will engage with our major funders and keep them inspired. So today, I worked, well, I worked for them for seven years. Um, I've given now over 1,200 lectures in 21 states. I'm the most in-demand speaker on this arcane, obscure topic. And we have a bed and breakfast that sits eight, from, eight feet from the trail. I'm a realtor today, specializing in the sale of houses near such places. And I became that sort of person when the antis I met along the way told me that they'd never be able to sell their house if the trail was built. And I said, you are wrong, and I will prove it wrong. And so I set out, and I became uh, a top-notch realtor. I'm usually top 2 or 3% in my marketplace. And not all my sales are next to rail trails, but a lot of them. And, uh, and, and a lot of people like their, their realtors to be doing inspirational work, not merely being a golfer. I'm, well, I don't have any kids or grandkids. So I got to do something innovative and special, and I'm not old enough to golf, so I'm not there. And so this is what I do. And so I went back into every place, actually, after I left Rails to Trails. That was in 2004. And I resurrected every project that was voted down. I went back in, and there was about 10 places around New England, basically southern New England that voted down the trail and I went back in and resurrected the project, got them to yes. That's all I do. I don't go and hold their hands and, ooh, shall you build asphalt or stone dust? Or what are you gonna do with this design aspect? I don't care. All I care about is the politics, getting places to yes. That's what I specialize in and that's what I'm effective in. And, uh, and so there are actually as I mentioned, more rail-to-trail projects within 150 feet, excuse me, 150 miles where I'm sitting than anywhere else in North America. And it is astounding how the world is about to change. You know, because a lot of uh, little New Englandy cutesy downtowns with their grid pattern streets and sidewalks and porches and, and antique buildings filled with commercial uses if your DOT overbuilds those places with, uh, with lots of stoplights and lots of lines and lots of uh, defined DOT stuff, then that's not so good. You have to keep it mysterious. You keep, it, keep slow traffic, will restore your downtown. If you have rail trails right alongside your downtown, on the outskirts of the downtown, you will have a, a successful downtown business. And, and that's what New England is all about. It's not about huge uh, Walmart-driven suburban-style parking lots. It is about grid pattern streets, sidewalks, porches, the neighborhoods of the past become useful for neighborhoods of the future. It's not done by accident. It is done by careful thought and planning. So that's what I do. I make trouble. What did you say? What was the last part? I make trouble. <laughs> make and trouble so you, this would apply to anywhere that people were, were having a fight with, I guess you know the word NIMBYs? Oh, yeah. About, about yeah. a road diet? 
Yeah, there's, um, you have to be, have the, your neighborhood people become compelling speakers. If you try to bring in consultants, um, that will be less effective, it will cost you money and, and they'll be very prim and proper, but they won't be, they won't be advocates really. The advocates have to bring passion. Consultants don't bring passion. They will bring charts and uh, a lot of wherewithal and grand resumes, but you really have to have, you have to have a neighbor to neighbor conversation. The other interesting thing about Massachusetts in this sort of neighbor to neighbor conversation I'm talking about, did you know that there are more land trusts in teeny tiny Massachusetts than anywhere else except for California, which is 20 times larger. And you'd say, why is that? Well, the, the successful model for a land trust to preserve land is either preserve as farmland or forest or some iconic geological feature. Um, that idea came about in the late 1800s when there was a group called the Trustees of Reservations. And they were set up specifically to cajole, to embarrass, to force the state into doing state parks. And they succeeded, but they did not, excuse me, go away. They actually then continued to buy iconic things like iconic view sheds, um, geological features. There's a dinosaur footprint park not far from here it was bought by them. Back in the 1930s, they've been around forever and they're still around. But their most dramatic take home was the idea of preser preservation of land is best done on a neighbor to neighbor conversation. And, and one of the ways to do this, there are, there are big national nonprofits geared towards environmental conversations or land preservation. But they're, at least in the context of where I live in Southern New England, they are here, but they're not seen in places where there's robust uh, local land trusts in the mix. They're usually seen, the big, the big names in this realm are seen in places where they don't have a, a good neighbor to neighbor conversation. And so what happens here is that there are all these little local land trusts, local to just a handful of communities that will get together and have um, conversations with landowners who wanna do the good thing, that is to say, preserve their interesting feature, whether it's a farm and, you know, local farms are king around here. We don't, we don't typically have 1500 mile flour. flour. The wheat is grown locally now and it's, it's milled here and manufactured. And so the, the concept of local conversations makes for an easier, more successful run. And there are, there are scores and scores of farms around here that are forever preserved. In fact, there's a voca vocational schools here that not only train kids to do, you know, plumbers, electricians, carpenters, but also to become farmers. So that when the farmers want to retire, they don't have to sell to developers who produce uniform cookie cutter subdivisions. Those are virtually unheard of. There's only a couple within 25 miles of here that are probably more than, I don't know, between 10 and 40 houses. That, that would be it. 
The rest of it is grid pattern streets, sidewalks, porches, your neighborhoods of the past being restored as neighborhoods of the future, but just over the boundary, the farms are completely intact and functional and successful. And so that conversation leads into the rail trail development, which is very difficult because in many places, the railroad stopped running 40 years ago. And you literally have dozens and dozens of places where the forest is growing up between the rails. And people always thought, people look at life as a snapshot that will never change. That would be incorrect. Change always comes. It even comes to places where the dead railroad has been sitting furloughed for two generations. Those are gonna be repurposed as trails. And I know of one place where uh, there's a war going on right now that the antis have dropped in over $300,000 fighting uh, upgrade of the, the electric grid and uh, converting converting the dead railroad to a, uh, to a linear park, let's call it. And so they're gonna lose, the stars are already aligned. They will lose. They'll drop probably 400 big ones, but they will lose and the trail will be built. You know, it's, it's inevitable now. This is, there's not that many wars going on. So, so I've gone back to my history. I started off in this realm as with a historic narrative or search. And then I got involved in the politics and we broke the backs of most of the opposition now. And, and so now going back to the history through Nautic Network. Um, so do you have your principles of how to, how to fight the antis? I am writing a memoir. It'll probably be two volumes. And this conference I'm organizing now for uh, October 16th. If anybody wants to see it, by the way, if you go to GS, as in Golden Spike, GS2021.org, that will take you to the Gilbertville complex there. And uh, you'll see the cute little frozen in amber industrial town of Gilbertville. After that's done, and I might have to postpone it because of the COVID, uh, the, the bad variant that's uh, expanding, might have to postpone until spring, but that's okay. All the heavy lifting's up front. Once I get it done, then we can just uh, move on to next spring. But the, the, the memoir, you gotta think of me as this. I'm a combination of Johnny Appleseed beating the drum about one time. And I'm the rain man, the rail trains. I'm very, very smart and astute about how to reassemble dead railroads. And the experience here is not like the experience in the Midwest or even out in California, where the chain of title might be very flimsy. Very around here, it's very robust. And you know, I bought Corridor to try to flush out lawsuits, have people try and sue me, but they weren't smart enough to do that, even though I had uh, top-notch white-shoed law firms on, on board to uh, go to court, but that didn't happen. So I just plot along here and I discovered that I'm sort of like also not just the rain man, but I'm also like Forrest Gump. Forrest Gump, what was special about that guy? Well, he was a witness 
to iconic events of his times in the 60s and 70s. I've been a witness to the most momentous rail trail stuff, a very narrow, arcane subject that nobody can figure out because it's so complex and confusing. Uh, but I've been a witness to iconic events. I've been accosted a couple of times, had a lawyer, threatened to destroy the quality of my life if I continued to go into his town and resurrect the project that was voted down 10 years earlier. People think votes are forever. No, they're, they're, they're in place for a while until the generational shift takes place and then it gets inverted. And uh, so that, that's what I do. And so we don't have any kids or grandkids, but I do make trouble. So I got to quantify it because now we're in the third, the third stage of truth and people don't believe that we're people opposed to these things. Well, I will be talking about that aspect in my moment, my memoir. Do people want us, because we also like actual trains, do, mm -hmm. do people, the same people who want bike lanes often want, you know, rail lines. So is there any, anybody who's, who's trying to get trains back on these, these rail lines? Well, the high water mark of railroad construction was during World War I, when it was around 320,000 miles nationally. And after that, it all started being abandoned. We have about 110,000 miles nationally. That means two-thirds of that is gone. Where did it go? Well, about 40,000 miles or so is open now or soon to be open as a rail train. The rest of it has been swallowed up by adjoining landowners or fragmented or destroyed in some fashion. But it's... Um, it's not likely to come back. In fact, the, there are four big railroads in the United States, two on the east and two on the west. And the ones in the east, there were survivors from the mergers and acquisitions from the 60s and 70s and 80s. And what are the coal-carrying railroads? Imagine that. The survivors of all these wars between railroads were coal carriers. Guess what? Coal is leaving the stage. And, 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 and actually, if I can be a little edgy here, the coal-carrying railroads, where do they get their start? They got their start from the Confederate, the failed Confederate Army Officer Corps. That when, when they came in and found a new job with this newfangled thing they were rebuilding after the Civil War, railroads, well, then that's when coal started to come in right after the Civil War. Coal mines and more technology enabled to mine coal effectively. And these became really big entities. Well, here we are now when coal is leaving the stage. What else is happening that's iconic? Well, autonomous trucks are coming too. And so the other big thing that these East Coast railroads do is they call them intermodal trains, where it comes into California, Long Beach, all these ships came full of stuff for Walmart and Home Depot on these containers, look like truck bodies, they get double stacked on flat cars, come across the continent, and then offloaded. Well, what happens when autonomous trucks come in? Do you think they're gonna be dealing with the ugly, stinking railroads? No, they hate railroads. 
that's like the steel industry hated railroads and they, and, and the oil industry hated railroads and they developed pipelines and they broke several big railroads 125 years ago that everybody's forgotten. The same thing is about to happen. Autonomous trucks will be carrying those stupid containers across the country. The railroads will break. They will be nationalized again by the federal government. Most people don't realize that the railroads were nationalized once before during World War I. And you're gonna find out if you do a little research that they, they broke needing to be nationalized because they weren't playing well together. And they, during World War I, everything got gridlocked and the war material effort got, didn't get to its destinations on time. So the federal government came in and nationalized the railroads. What did they do? Well, they inventoried for one thing. First thing, they made, they made the railroads play together nicely. That was job number one. Number two, they, they actually inventoried everything railroads owned to find out what did they own? What kind of chain of title did they use for their, for their railroad corridor too? That's an important thing. So they inventoried every nut, every bolt, every rail car, every station, everything, soup to nuts, everything. They inventoried all the land the railroad zone too. On these maps, they created called Val maps, valuation maps. Every mile of every railroad at the high watermark of railroad construction in the United States is at your county hall of records or your local rail fan organization. These maps are like a snapshot in time. If you see a place in your neighborhood, gee, the grass doesn't, the grass doesn't grow there anymore. And I know that used to be a railroad. Well, if you get the Val map, you'll see what kind of industry was there. You'll be able to investigate and see that it was probably a brownfield or some kind of contamination that doesn't allow the grass to grow anymore. Wouldn't that be useful? And so that's something for you to discover. But the uh, the railroads. I marketed rail freight for 12 years and I know how to make a railroad work. And this is the, 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 secret, the secret recipe, the secret sauce to make a railroad work. It needs about 150 cars per mile per year to make or break even or make money. If you have a 10 mile branch line, that means you're gonna need 1,500 cars a year to make it work. Could be 1,500 cars in or 1,500 cars out or 750 each way, but it's got a total 1,500. And if it's supported by your state government to keep it going because that factory down there really needs rail service and without the railroad, then the, all those jobs would be lost. Well, people like me in the real railroad world, we call those pretend railroads they wouldn't be existing if it were not if we're not for state subsidies keeping it going to subside to be a subsidiary or keeping it going for a local industry and and so in most places railroads don't make any sense i could when i was running transloads in southern new england i would bring commodities across the continent on rail cars into our facility facilities plural, and we'd uh, unload those cars and ship them to their final, ship the commodities to the final destination when they're, uh, 
when the owners wanted it to be there in the condition they wanted to be, didn't want it wet, didn't want it dented. We did those and we could do it cheaper than the railroads that were closer to the end users. Don't forget these railroads are, they're not 21st century operations. At best, they're 20th century and some of them are actually 19th century operations. And the motto of the train crews is, it, your commodity will get there when it gets there. And most people in the 21st century want their goods and stuff yesterday, not when it gets there, it'll get there. And so that's the basic premise of railroads. They're, they are really not uh, 21st century entities. And if you really wanna have passenger rail again, step right up. More people moved via the trolley network in the United States than on the passenger railroad. Would you like me to talk about Amtrak for a second here? Amtrak is a pretender railroad operating on other people's tracks dispatched by people that are not friendly to Amtrak. And all their capital needs are met by the whims of Congress, a complete, utter recipe for a disaster. If you really want to make railroads work, passenger rail, you really should go back to trolleys. I mean, the red line trolleys in LA, oh my God. My brother-in-law used to live in Seal Beach. And I remember a couple little rail trails there built on the dead red line trolleys. If you really want to have railroads work, trolleys would be a heavy lift because a lot of what they were in were on roads. And so if you're really serious about taking cars off the road, you would put the trolley back in. However, we're not really serious about taking cars off the road, are we? If you want to make Amtrak real, you could go back the way it used to work. 1960, that was a notable year but 99% of the people have no idea why. That was the 100th anniversary of the United States Postal Service contract with the railroads in 1860. We will put railway post office cars on every passenger train. We will sort the mail and we'll get it ready when it gets to the destination, we'll get it ready to go to uh, out to deliver. That, that went away in 1960. Why was that? Well, the new interstate highways are coming. That means trucks have bigger capacity on good, solid roads that can go faster. We'll take it off of the railroads who, who had a motto of, it'll get there when it gets there. And we'll put it on new interstate highways. So the railroads knew that passenger service was really a three-legged stool. Didn't work with only two legs. So if you have three legs and you take one away, you take away the railway post office, the two legs were actually doomed to fail. One of those two legs was RPO, railway, excuse me, the railway post office was one of the three legs. REA, Railroad Express Agency, REA. Uh, that was a consortium of seven railroads that, that uh, owned that. And if you bought something from Sears Roebuck or Montgomery Ward catalog, it got shipped via REA to come to your local little train depot, or maybe if you had a bigger town, a you know, separate standalone REA building, and you went and picked it up or they delivered it to your house. 
You could even buy kit houses from, from uh, uh, Sears Roebuck and that got delivered via REA and delivered to your buildable lot. And there are many Sears kit build houses here. But REA, when, when the railroads lost the, uh, the railway post office business, they knew the goose was cooked. And so they, they sold REA to a small company in Seattle, United Parcel Service, UPS, got its start by buying the business model from the railroads. And today, the largest shipper of railroad on railroads is UPS, container trains. And if you're on an Amtrak train doddering along on rail that's sculpted for freight, not for passengers, it's different. And you're on a single track and you're going along and your train stops there's a siding and you're parked in the hole waiting for, what could it be? It's gonna be a UPS container train that's not gonna stop. And it's gonna go right through, right past you on the passing siding. And, and then you wonder why Amtrak is not so successful. Well, there's a lot of reasons for that that most people have no idea about. And it's also about that they typically had obsolete equipment and they're always beholden to the whims of Congress, which is never, never a success. But we're seeing this infrastructure project coming forward. And also included in it is the largest disbursement of federal dollars going to Amtrak ever in their history. And most of the track they own, I'll screen it, say it this way, most of their routes they travel is not on rail they own. It's only really pretty much here in the Northeast where they own their own rail. And they do a better job here but than the other parts of the country. But there's a lot of reasons why Amtrak is, is not as best as it could be. It's because it was never really destined to be the best could be. If you really want good rail service, you will maybe we'll just have to wait for the autonomous trucks to break the freight railroads. And then it'll be worthy enough for the federal government to come in and, and rebuild everything and make sure passenger rail gets a fair shake this time, rather than anything that happened in the 1970s, including the, the creation of Amtrak. There was nothing ever, ever built in the 70s, whether it was housing stock, industrial facilities, nothing was good was built in the 70s, including Amtrak. That's uh, just my take on it. There's a way to do it, but I don't think we're really there. The trails, the Massachusetts Central, I guess, mm. they're amazing. How far do they go? The, the Mass Central Rail Trail goes from Boston's North Station all the way to Northampton's Union Station. But right there at Union Station in Northampton, it connects with a, a north-south trail that's 84 miles long, the longest interstate trail in New England, that goes from... Uh, Northampton all the way to New Haven. And that's probably two years from getting completely built out. The East-West Mass Central Corridor is probably five years from getting built out. What's really amazing about these things, there's some economic development function um, that the governor of New York a few years ago commissioned the DOT to build another 400 miles in four years because it was so, the economic, economic development potential is so compelling that it did that. 
But I like to think of it as a community development project where you can have your kids learn how to ride a bike safely. And, and when, um, when you have local businesses in your downtown, because more people can walk or bike to the downtown because of the trail network not far from your community, well, those are all good things. And, and, and local is king. So this is, this is a very special place. And it's largely special because of the, the, uh, the dead railroad network that's being repurposed. If you want to find all of them around the country, you go to traillink.com, which is put out by Rails to Trails Conservancy. It's two L's together, traillink.com. It's a searchable database of every state's inventory of dead railroads converting to linear parts. Thank you so much. And if anybody wants to buy a real estate along a trail, they call you, right? In Massachusetts anyway, yes. You know, or even just a few blocks away. People, people love that. They love the way to get through towns without having to face traffic. So people vote with their feet. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Bike Talk. If you want to hear more, go to kpfk.org, navigate to programs, and choose Bike Talk. On the Bike Talk page, click on the archives link to play or download shows posted in the last four months. Go to biketalk.com and copy or click on the RSS link to subscribe. Our Twitter handle is Bike Talk PFK. On Facebook, we are Bike Talk. You can become friends and join our group. 